Last week, uh, we spoke about wisdom, and I talked about the the prophets and the importance of wisdom. And this week, it might seem a little bit like I'm doing a 180 on you all and all of a sudden saying that it's not important anymore. Uh, But it's not what I'm saying. Uh, But there's a really interesting thing that happens in Ecclesiastes. If you've read Ecclesiastes, it's a really interesting book. Uh, Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, they kind of start off saying everything is futile. Futile, 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 futility, everything is futility. It's a bit of a, it can be a bit of a depressing book. And it's interesting because one of the things that Solomon says is futile is wisdom. He says this in Ecclesiastes 2.13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. Solomon's kind of pointing out here that at the end of the day, the same naturalistic fate befalls everybody, because everybody dies. So everyone has the same naturalistic ends. But it's important to realise this isn't a rejection of wisdom. He's still saying that wisdom is good here, but what he's kind of saying is this is actually a massive part of wisdom. It's important for us to realise that wisdom in and of itself is not important. Wisdom is important because of the way that it helps us to understand God, to relate to God and to help other people. That's the point of it. So going after knowledge for knowledge's own sake is... Uh, is a little bit of a stupid end, actually, because it's not going to get you anywhere. At the end of the day, you're going to die just like everybody else. Today we're going to discuss a little bit this whole idea of knowledge for knowledge's sake, wisdom for wisdom's sake. <clears throat> Two weeks ago, we looked at the old saying from uh, Blaise Pascal, and he said that everybody wants to be happy all the time. That's why we do stuff, because we want to be happy. If you were here, you remember that. That's the main reason we do things, because we want to be happy. And then last week we discussed the foolish things that we actually do in order to try to be happy, the foolish things that we think and the foolish things that we say and pursue in order to try to be happy. This week I want to have a look at one of the other main ways that I think we try to be happy. And actually one of the weird things about this is that it doesn't make us happy. It actually causes destruction to ourselves and our relationships with other people and our relationship with God a lot of the time. I think that one of the principal ways in which humanity seeks its own happiness is through control. We want control. And we think incorrectly that having control will bring us happiness. Because when we are in control, we'll be able to do everything our own way. It kind of makes sense. We'll think if we're in control, we can do everything our own way. We can do whatever we want. And then we'll be able to do whatever we want at any given moment, whatever our feelings are telling us will make us happy. Kind of makes sense. And probably one of the main reasons that we think that control will bring us happiness is because the times that we're unhappy, it appears on the surface to be because we're not in control. Think about it. In other words, we think that we're unhappy because we can't do whatever we want. Okay. Now, if you have a think about a situation for yourself, a time that you've been unhappy, there's probably one of a few reasons that will sum sum up that particular moment for you when you are unhappy. Number one... 
you have been prevented from doing something that you wanted to do. So you wanted to do something, someone stopped you from doing it, so you became unhappy. Number two, you have done something and it is, hasn't met your expectations and that's made you unhappy. Or number three, you have had something external happen to you which you didn't want to happen and that has made you unhappy. There's the three main categories, right? I think probably everything can fit under one of those three categories. And in truth, two can kind of fit underneath three because something not meeting your expectations is something happening to you externally. And so really there's the two things. Someone stopped you from doing something or you did something else happened to you. They're the two options. Therefore, we can kind of see that there's a constant struggle of being human which is that we want to be happy and we believe that being in control will make us happy. The struggle exists because we rarely feel like we're in control. And in fact, we're not ever in complete control. And it's obvious, you'll know that. You don't have to be alive for very long to know that things happen that are outside of your control. Think about those times of unhappiness again. Did you think to yourself, if only, if only that person didn't come on holidays with us? If only we got to do it the way that I suggested, it would have gone much better, I'm sure. If only that thing was still working properly, if only I had enough money to buy that thing that I want, or more of that thing, then I would be happy. Control is at the core of all of these things. If you could control your circumstances, if things could happen the way that you want, you would be happy, so you think. And I've thought this, we all think this most of the time. I would be happy if I could do whatever I want and control the circumstances around me. Of course, it doesn't take long to see that this isn't true, right? Because it's easy to realise that people that do have the means to control things, people that are very rich and they can kind of do whatever they want, are often some of the most unhappy people in the world. It doesn't take long to understand that and to see that the celebrities and you know the, the uh, suicide rate goes up dramatically when people have more wealth, strangely enough. The other thing is the more power we get, the more control we get, most often the more corrupted we get. There was Lord Acton that said that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's probably a lot of you have heard that phrase before, absolute power corrupts absolutely. The second part of, of what he said there though is great men are almost always bad men. So interesting that that's what happens to us. When we get control, most of the time we just want more of it and most of the time it turns us into worse people. And this also makes sense when we look at one of the major reasons for unhappiness, which is conflict. When people are fighting about something, it's really the thing that is the most important. It's really that thing that is the most important thing in the argument. It's actually control. That's what's important. Because when, when you win control, you win the thing that you're arguing about. See, if, if Caitlin and I want to go to dinner and I want sushi and she wants Nando's, we start fighting about, well, we don't, we don't fight, but, you know, who knows, maybe. We might start fighting about wanting to go to dinner. She wants nanos, I want sushi. Now, really what I want is control of that situation because once I get control, then I can get the other thing that I want. Control is the important part. The issue is never the issue. The issue is always control. Obviously, the issue is really important, and particularly in the middle of the situation, when you can't see past, last week I talked about the fog of war that can come in and our circumstances can blind us. And when we can't see past that, we would say that the issue is really important, and that's the main thing. But a lot of the time afterwards, when you have the ability to reflect on these conflicts, 
you know that what you really wanted at the time was control. You wanted control of the person. Now you can see that when both people want control, no one's going to win. The very nature of control is pride-centred. It is about placing yourself above, above other people, controlling other people. And hopefully you can begin to see that there's some really damaging parts of control. If control is pride-centred, if it's about power, about putting ourselves above other people, then obviously it doesn't fit very well within Christianity. The core of Christianity is loving others and loving God. It is not about controlling others. It is about allowing ourselves to submit to the control of God. Wanting to be in control puts us in opposition with God, who really is in control. A couple of verses that talk about the control of God. James 4 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know that tom- what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, because God's in control. Another one, Proverbs 19. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And Isaiah 14. For the Lord of hosts has purpose, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? God is in control. And when we try to be in control... We come up in conflict, and it's not a conflict that we're going to win. Of course, there is a degree of control that God has given us, as is explained in Genesis 1.26. You know, when God created the world and he created people, he said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on it. See, we have been given a level of dominion, but you will know that this level of dominion is different to the sort of control that you want, that your deceitful hearts secretly want, is more control than just that. It's control over people and circumstances, and a lot of the time, over God. We want complete control. Now, how does this fit into the Culture and Christ series? Well, culture is obsessed with control. And one of the ways that we see control being manifested in a pretty damaging way is through science. Now, this might sound like a bit of a weird message this morning. Okay, I'm talking about magic, minimalism, and control. There's a whole group of Christian thinkers a couple hundred years ago called the mystics, the Christian mystics. And really, they were concerned with the supernatural sort of side of God, but the supernatural that existed within the natural. Uh, That might sound a bit confusing, but that'll make sense as we go along. My aim today is to open your eyes to see the magic of God around you everywhere. And I've got to define my terms so you don't get study, start getting confused about magic. <clears throat> this isn't in any way an anti-science message. I think that science is amazing and I think that God is amazing for creating science and helping us to understand science. However, just consider this for a moment. Thousands of years ago, a tribe in Central Africa is doing their daily work, gathering firewood, fruit and vegetables, hunting animals, making skins. Some of the tribe members realise with a chill that the clouds are gathering on the horizon. The hunters return early as the first drops of rain begin to fall. The frightened children congregate at their parents' feet and peer nervously towards the sky as they hear loud cracking noises overhead. The sky lights up with sudden ferocity and the clouds growl and shout down at them. Big flashes and bolts of light come towards the tribe as the clouds get closer and the rain gets heavier. 
And the tribesmen look to their spiritual leader who tells them to bow down and pray to the gods that they would be spared. Now we think to ourselves, it's just a storm, silly tribesmen. There's nothing to be afraid of except for maybe a rogue lightning bolt coming down and striking someone. If only they knew about science, they wouldn't have to have had to be so scared and they wouldn't have had to worship some made-up god of the storms. Ancient civilizations had a natural tendency to have gods that controlled these sort of events. Asian, African and American tribes all had gods of lightning and rain and thunder. And it seems to me to be a pretty natural thing. We take it for granted that we understand lightning. But for the majority of history, it was a magical power from the sky that people couldn't explain. Funnily enough, though, worshipping any kind of god at all, even the wrong one, is actually... When you think about it, that's a lot more closely connected to reality than claiming that no God exists at all. You understand that? Worshipping any sort of God, even if it's not real, is closer to the truth than pretending or saying that there's no God at all. For the majority of human history, almost all people at all times have believed in some kind of God. It's only in the last few centuries that people have had the audacity to claim that they were created by no one. Even the word creation is the wrong word. We came from somewhere, certainly, but it most definitely was not God. Scientists that use science as a way of explaining away God are not explaining away God. They are just worshipping the God of science. Does that make sense? They say that science is the thing that created us. So they've just taken God off the pedestal and they put science up there and science is now their God. The Enlightenment period was a century or so in which science started explaining things that for the majority of human existence were unexplained miracles of nature. There was a time in which all these discoveries, these scientific discoveries were happening called the Enlightenment when all of a sudden people were understanding things that they've never understood before. During this time, people became smarter and it was also a big, large, a large step forward in popular atheism. Interestingly, though, the, uh, the Enlightenment was actually led by a large percentage of Christian scientists. Johannes Kepler, Descartes, Pascal, Robert Boyle, Isaac Newton, all of these people, which you've probably heard of before, were all Christian men who discovered incredible things about the way in which God created the world to work. It's actually only fairly modern scientists that have used this knowledge of God in order to make knowledge their God. See, because there was a time that lightning was magic. And when it was, it was magical. Now it is science. And science has killed the magical element of nature. Now, the word magic has some pretty bad connotations. When people use it these days, they're kind of using it like human-wielded power that witches use or the kind of stuff that's in Harry Potter. It always comes across as being dark and evil, like, the course, uh, like witchcraft or something like that. But the, the dictionary definition of magic is this. The power of apparently influencing the course of events by using mysterious or supernatural forces. It's supernatural. And the truth is, God is supernatural. Now, I'm not saying that you have to refer to God as magical, because it sounds a bit weird, but I think that it's a fair enough thing to say, that when you have a look at the definition of magic that some of the things that God do does really appears to be magical. I don't mean to be crass here or using semantics, but it's important that when I use the word magic, you're not thinking about Harry Potter magic. 
you'll think I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a real, incredible world that we live in that we don't even realise a lot of the time. We can use whatever words we like to describe God, but I think that magical is a decent one. God is incredible and supernatural, not only in his obvious miracles, but in the everyday changes of nature. G.K. Chesterton, a guy that I love quoting, said this, and this quote, when I first got it, it just blew me away, and it's so simple. The things that we see every day are the things that we never see at all. Every day we see things like the morning fog, the frost melting to dew, the leaves changing colour and falling to the ground as the seasons change, clouds and sunsets. These things are so common, we see them every day. They're so common that we are in danger of never seeing them at all. Have you ever noticed this? That you can be driving and there's a sunset and you're just driving along and then you look out and you're like, whoa, where did that come from? And then if you've got somewhere to go, you keep on driving, trying to look at, well, this is what I do, try to look at it out the window and almost crash because I need to see this thing, right? And there's been times when I haven't been busy that I've just pulled over on Kynock and just looked at it for a while. And these, these are the sort of quotes. That quote there is one of the reasons that I did that because I realised how much I ignored the majesty of God that is manifested in creation. The magic of God. See, Romans 1.20 puts it like this. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We can see God we can see his eternal power and his divine nature through creation, through nature. And this is kind of what the Christian mystics were interested in. This opens your eyes to see God. And for me, it's one of the reasons that I can wake up and sing. Because a lot of the time when I'm looking for external things to praise God about, my circumstances might not be that praiseworthy, or that's what I think at the moment, you know? But the truth is, his divine nature is manifested to us all the time in everything that we see. Why am I bothering to make this point? It does sound a bit strange saying that God is magical. And that's probably because when we think of magic, we think of it being kind of simple like a performance, like a magic trick that someone does at a show. But that actually tells us something pretty interesting about ourselves because what's the first thing that we say after we see a magic trick? Well, everyone might be different, but I know the first thing that I'm tempted to say, how did you do that? Yeah? You see a magic trick and you're like, that is amazing. I want to know how you did that. There's this guy, Christopher Wayne, who does the magic stuff at Easter Fest and everything. And he does this one trick um, where he does something with a card. Like he gives, shows someone a card and they got the card or whatever. And then somehow he has a drawing of a pack of cards and he magically makes, it's just a flat piece of paper and he makes the card come up like animates somehow the piece of paper. It blows my mind every time. Like I just, because then he rips the paper off and gives it to someone. I can't work it out. It's crazy. Okay. But the weird thing is that I want to know how that's done. Or at least I did. And I'll try to explain what I mean. Why do we ask that question? Why do we want to know how? There's a natural compulsion in us to learn, which is a good thing. But I think that there's another reason that we want to know how. Specifically when it comes down to magic tricks and things like that. The answer, I think, is that there's some, some part of us that doesn't like it. We've been tricked. That's the word. It's a trick. We've been tricked. We, we know it, and we're not okay with it. We're not okay with being tricked. 
We know that it's explainable and we need to know how it happened. But as you'll know, if you've ever found out how a trick is done, as soon as you know how the trick is done, it's ruined for you. Has that ever happened to anyone? You really want to know how a trick's done and then you find out and that's it. It doesn't, you could, I, I could, you could have seen the trick hundreds of times before and every time it just amazed you. And then as soon as you know it's something as simple as a piece of paper behind the other piece of paper, that's not how it's done, but a piece of paper behind the other piece of paper or something, that's it. The trick is over. The magic is gone. It's no longer amazing. In fact, it's actually kind of boring now. And now, instead of watching the magician and instead of watching the trick, you actually start to watch other people in the crowd. You watch their faces to see them in that moment of wonder, to see them at that moment where they see the, the, the big reveal. And possibly you do this for two reasons. Firstly, I think that maybe we want to see them react because we know the secret. And very soon after the trick, we'll make sure that everybody knows that we know the secret. You see a trick, someone goes, that's amazing, and you say, I know how they do that. Because now we've got it over them. We know things that they don't know. And that makes us feel really good. And they'll hate you for it. And they'll beg you to tell them. And you'll love it. But you won't tell them. But secondly, and really importantly, I think that you watch them. You watch for that moment of wonder on their face. Because you miss it. You don't have that anymore. Because you wanted to know how it happened. And now that you know, it's not amazing anymore. And some part of you still wants that wonder. Some part of you still wants that. I think it's the part of us that loves to watch children discover things for the first time. You know, Wes Hitzke is in here, but he's obs- he, he was obsessed for a while with his little niece who was just learning things and had this incredible just wonder in her eyes. She would just be so shocked and amazed at things when she saw things. And she'd run around smelling flowers and just, just expressing complete joy over the whole thing. That innocent wonder on a child's face when they see fire or smell flowers or watch lightning because for them it's magic for us unfortunately we've gone and grown up and we know better than that we know better than that it's not magic it's just normal it's just science science tells us how fire works it's just a rapid persistent chemical reaction that releases heat and light especially the exothermic combination of a combustible substance with oxygen You all know that. You might not know those words, but you know it because you've been told it. Science tells us how flowers get their smell. The petals house tiny glands that produce essential or volatile oils that vaporise easily, often releasing a distinctive aroma. Science tells us how lightning bolts work, the movement of electrons. Science has explained to us always, using very small measurements of things, how things work. Through science, we have deconstructed the entire world. And in doing so... We've actually deconstructed ourselves. This is called minimalism. Explaining things by getting down to the smallest elements that make them up. You'll notice that all scientific explanation is about saying what it is when it gets down to its smallest. That's all it is. We think for some reason that we've explained things well because we're able to talk about them being really, really small. Atoms and particles and things like that. And perhaps you've heard this as people talk about emotions. After all, they're just chemical reactions in your brain. That's all emotions are, nothing else. See, through our minimising of the world, we've actually minimised ourselves. And now, everything can be explained in big, big, long words that don't mean much. The most intense human emotions can be explained away in a cold, calculating way. They're just chemicals. Happiness is just a chemical. 
Love is just a chemical. All of it is just chemicals. So, why do we do it? Why do we become obsessed with science? And why do we like to deconstruct things and know things? Well, I think there's a great many noble reasons to pursue science. However, as much as we might pretend that it's not the case, we do it for control. Now, we might not do it for control because we're not scientists, but science allows us to have control over things. I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I, in fact, you know, I believe that God is sovereign and has made it possible for us to know things and learn things scientifically. For instance, understanding medicine has helped us to control sickness, which is okay. However, what I am saying that humanity's bent nature, the fact that we are uh, corrupted, it actually bends science away from its good possibilities and towards its very negative possibilities that usually stem out of an inordinate desire for control. See, we can use medicine to help people, but we can also use medicine to kill people. And we do. In fact, statistics on things like abortion would be... It'd be hard to know which one we're doing more of at the moment. A really good example of this, and a fairly controversial example of this, is uh, birth control. The name kind of gives it away. Control. This is a controversial example, but I think it's a good one. And it's, you know, I picked the date that... Sondi and Gilmore weren't here to talk about this, but so I don't get in trouble. But I want to get, I'm not going to get into sort of any theological stuff on this. It's a debatable topic. Some Christian denominations would say that it shouldn't be done at all, and other Christian denominations would say, do whatever you want. And for the record, we land somewhere in the middle. You can work that out. But we think here that the heart condition is the most important part of the whole thing. Now, whatever your theological opinion on it is, I think it's fairly obvious that the pill has done some tremendous damage to our society. Science has deconstructed the magic of conception to the point of understanding its basic chemical properties, and then it developed a way to control those properties. Now, sure, this could perhaps be used in a responsible way. However, overwhelmingly, it has been used by an extremely bent and warped society to pursue their unrighteous and self-centered desires. This is what the pill has done. I'm not saying necessarily that everyone uses it in this sense, but this is one of the things that has happened through science. It has completely removed in culture's mind the idea of children from the idea of sex. In doing so, it has created the possibility for men and women to be free agents in the sexual market. Babies never given a second thought. It's got nothing to do with it. And when you watch TV and just like watch popular TV shows, you know that this is the case. People talk about sleeping together all the time and very rarely, unless it's a plot point in the story, do babies ever come into it. The sexual revolution and the pill were scientific leaps that were used for selfish gains by selfish people and the result is the sexual confusion that we currently live in in this culture. See, I'm not necessarily making a statement about contraception being right or wrong. I'm making a statement about the way that we can use science and the way that people do use science. But consider this for a second. This blows my mind. What is, uh, what is conception, not contraception? What is conception? When you really think about conception, it's just crazy. It's not just science. It's the creation of a soul. It's not just chemical. It is God intervening and taking part in the creation of a new human soul that will live for eternity. C.S. Lewis said this in The Weight of Glory, there are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. 
How much does that fly in the face of our deconstruction and our minimalism that we live in? Do you realise that? Look around. Look around the room. These people in the room that you're all so nervous about looking around and seeing right now, they're all immortal. Everyone in this room is going to live forever. That's crazy. Doesn't that just trip you out? Everyone here is immortal. We are all immortal souls. Lewis also said, it's not that you have a soul, you are a soul. You have a body. See, science has us thinking scientifically, which means that we see people as physical bodies that grow old and then disappear when they die. But your spouse that made you angry this morning, your child that wears your patience thin, your parents who force you to wash the dishes, they are all immortal souls. And conception is the incredible, mystical, inexplicable moment in which they all, you and everybody else, came into being. And it's somehow an incredible combination of the spiritual and the physical. We know the terminology, we understand the mechanics, but we can't give a satisfying answer to why. We can't minimise this, we can't explain this. Yes, we know, you know, science can't explain why, only how. We know how lightning works, but no one can explain why. Why does it have to be like that at all? Surely we can imagine a world in which lightning comes from the ground up or from the sky up into space. It's imaginable, so why does it have to be this way? Yes, we understand that it's electrons moving, but why do electrons have to move at all? Why do they even have to exist at all? See, because science has made us think that things just are and we just accept it. And all of a sudden things become boring and we start to lose sight of the incredibleness of just what we live in, of everyday life. This is where we once again find the magic because it is magic. It's completely indescribable. G.K. Chesterton speaks in one of his books of the magic of seeing a lamppost glowing in the street until someone explains to him that it's just electricity on a metal pole. The more you know about it, the less magical it seems. We have deconstructed everything down to what it is made of. But as I said, deconstruction has really only served to deconstruct us. It doesn't answer the whys of life, but it does serve to demonstrate a fundamental thing about ourselves, and that is that we want control. We reduce things in order to control things. If we can explain things, we, if we can understand them, that means we can then put them in a box, and we are outside of the box. But we can't possibly be outside of the box, firstly, because we are made of the things that we've put inside of the box, like atoms. And secondly, because we didn't create the box. The only thing that can be outside of it is something that is not made of it and which existed before it, which is God. And we want to be God. That was Eve's accepted lie. That was what the serpent said. Eat the fruit, be like God. We want to put ourselves in God's place. And the more we know about science... The more we can put stuff in the box, the more we can control our surroundings and the more like God we start to feel. We want to minimise God's supernaturalness. We want to minimise his magic, his otherness, so that we can explain him and then control him because we don't want to lose ourselves in him. But of course, God, by very definition, is unexplainable and undefinable. If we were able to explain every aspect of God, we would have all the answers and we would actually be God. If God was completely explainable, if we could understand every part of him, including his eternal past, present and future, then we would be wiser than God 
and we would become God. So it's not only a good thing, but it's a necessary thing that there's parts of God that we don't understand. And this actually is a really freeing revelation. When we stop thinking that we have to explain everything and understand everything, we can finally start to understand just a little of anything. Chesterton said that we haven't returned to the spiritual theory because of this or that triviality. We've returned to it because by the rejection of rationalism, the world has finally become rational. We can start to understand it when we see it in light of the spiritual. So why is this so important? Why have I been doing this? What have I been attempting to do this morning? The attempt has been to help you realise how incredible God is. Because a lot of the time, we lose that. A lot of the time, we think God's incredible when he does something crazy, out of the ordinary. And that doesn't happen that much sometimes. And so we kind of lose our sight. We kind of become clouded by our circumstances and we don't see how incredible God is anymore. He is bigger than our universe and smaller than our atoms. He is outside of the box that we are currently constrained to exist within. We cannot reduce him with science because he made science. And why does this matter? There's an interesting story from Narnia that kind of helps to explain this a little bit. In The Magician's Nephew, which is the first book chronologically in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia series, there's two children, Diggory and Polly, and they find themselves in a magical city called Charn. And there's a bell in a room that has the following inscription under it. Make your choice, adventurous stranger. Strike the bell and buy the danger. Or wonder till it drive you mad what would have followed if you had. The room was full of frozen people. These people that looked like giants, like monarchs. And they started off very nice, but as they went along, they kind of got more and more freaky until the last one was... was a a big, tall woman, and she was very frightening. She was kind of beautiful in a very scary way. The whole room had a really foreboding feeling about it, and Polly was telling Diggory, don't ring the bell. But Diggory couldn't handle the feeling of not knowing. So against the warning of Polly, he struck the bell. And doing this, this was the thing that unleashed Jadis, the white witch, into Narnia. Right down the end of the line of the monarch, she stood up, became unfrozen, and she was the white witch. It was Diggory's curiosity, his desire to know things that unleashed the evil into the land. And this is the allegory of Eve taking the fruit. You want to know things. You want to be like God. You want to be wise like God. You want to be God. Then take the fruit because you want to know stuff and you want to control things by knowing things. That same evil was unleashed into our land, it wasn't the white witch, but that evil is here. And when we want to control things, that's the thing that we're doing. We are wanting to control God a lot of the time. See, our desire to have control is in direct contradiction to God's sovereignty. This conflict never ends well for us. In The Great Divorce, one of Lewis's characters says, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. But even for those who refuse to bend the knee, they will eventually bend the knee. 
There is only so much control that we can pretend to have and only so much control that God will let us think that we have. Eventually, God's will will be done. And this is not bad news. This is only bad news if we refuse to relinquish our control. It's good news. It's great news. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things are wor- uh, work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. At all times, through all things, in all circumstances, things are working together for God's constant, good, sovereign plan. This is good news. This is great news for us. It's the best news. And this is why we don't have to be anxious Did you ever think that it was a little bit unfair that God commands us not to be anxious? In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not be anxious about your life. And he continues on four other times, just bang, 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 right after each other in Matthew 6, telling us not to be anxious. He says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? There is awesome wisdom there. Jesus tells us not to be anxious, and then he reminds us that it's pointless anyway. But how can we not be anxious? We can only not be anxious if we're not in control. And every time that we are getting anxious about stuff, every time that you've become anxious about things or that I become anxious about things, it's because we start to think that we're in control. And if we don't get this done, it's not going to happen. And if I don't do it well enough, something terrible is going to happen. The truth is, it doesn't have to be like this. We don't have control. We're only fooling ourselves when we think or act like we do. The truth is we can relax. Not in a lazy way. There's still work to do. But we can relax. We can have the peace that passes understanding. We can enjoy God and enjoy the things that he's given us. We can get a perspective of the things that truly matter and enjoy them. Obviously, this message has been about a couple of different things this morning. But if you could get one single thing from it, it would be this. Stop trying to control every aspect of your life and allow God to reveal his majesty to you in old ways. I say old ways because I think a lot of the time we spend time looking for God in new ways and we haven't even seen the old ways yet. Remember, the things that you see every day are the things that you never see at all. So see God in everything. Enjoy God in nature. Enjoy the magical moments of walking through dried leaves on cold, crisp mornings. Enjoy watching your kids play. That's where God exalts. These are the pleasures that he has given us. And we often spend so much time analysing them that we never actually enjoy them. There are some things which are more mystical and reveal more of God's character the less you try and deconstruct them to their bare bones. When we try to control our circumstances, we often forget God in our circumstances. If there are some circumstances in your life that have become bigger than God, if there's something in your life that takes all of your time up thinking about, worrying about, paying money for, if you've lost sight of God because of your circumstances, what makes you think that God is going to give you that thing that you've become obsessed about? God wants to give you him. He doesn't want to give you some idol that you're chasing instead of him. This is what happens to us a lot of the time when we want control. We are taking control away from God. We don't want the things that he wants to give us. We decide that we know what's best for us. And then a lot of the time those things that we ask for, he's not going to give us because we're asking from a deceitful heart and we want that thing more than we want God. And God wants to give you 
all of himself. So stop being anxious and trying to control everything. We'll end with this verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That is a sweet verse. First of all, you don't have to be anxious. God's in control. All things work together for the good of those that, are, that love God and are called according to his name. Don't be anxious. And ask for things, but be thankful in your asking. Ask with a true heart that wants God and knows that God wants the best for you. Be thankful. I'll just pray and then we'll finish up. <clears throat> God, thank you for the way that you've revealed yourself to us in nature. I pray for everybody here that uh, we might leave today and just be able to enjoy the majesty of the world that you've created for us. Enjoy you in nature. Enjoy you in each other. That we'll be able to see each other truly, not just the way that science has told us to analytically look at things, but that we may see each other as souls that you have created that are on our path towards eternal happiness or eternal damnation and that we would help each other towards that path of eternal happiness with you. God, I pray that for everybody here that we would not be trying to control things in our lives. I pray for anybody here that has been holding on to something that they refuse to let go of, that they want to control and that they don't trust you for. God, I just pray that you would just reveal to them that you are in control and that you love them and you know what's best for them. I pray that you would help us not to be anxious, that we would relax and enjoy the life that you have given to us, that we would work hard, work for you, and love you. Amen.